All right. Um, so for those of you that haven't been in a while or is the first time with us, so we have been, uh, we started this sermon series. Where we're working through the book of First Timothy uh, through this spring semester. It's called Lead the Way. So we want to look at how we are to lead the way in our faith. And it's a book written by uh, Paul to his young protege in Timothy that he's placed in the church of Ephesus. And just kind of a whole bunch of craziness that's going on there. And so Paul is writing to encourage Timothy of how he is to lead the way in his faith. He's to stand firm in that. And so uh, we just got done with chapter one last week of about just all the different things addressing false teachings and how we're to wage just spiritual warfare, fight the good fight for spiritual, uh, for the truth of the gospel. And so tonight we're going to go into chapter two and we're going to look at how we are to pray for all people, how we should pray for all people. But before I get started on that, um, I just want to ask you all a question. Imagine, let's say I said, hey, I will give you, I will give you this card and it will give you access to unlimited funds. What would you do with it? You can talk back. It's okay. What, what would you do with it? Madison. I would... How much is in it first? I said it's unlimited funds. Oh, okay. So I would, I would probably spend it on my family. Okay. My stepdad has been wanting a new truck and a boat lately. Probably start with that first. Okay. I'm being Got unlimited funds. What are you doing with it? Buying Disney World. Buying Disney World. Okay. And Animal Disney Studios. Okay. Have what would you spend it on? Okay. 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 Major. You buy the whole country of Japan. Okay. Well, you already learned Japanese earlier, so okay. Okay. Sarah. Well, if it's unlimited, then you can continue to take money out of it. So you could just pay for the entire world's electricity bills. Okay. That's nice. Clayton. I would move in. Okay, I had two. Okay. 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 First, I would kidnap Morgan Wallen and then move to Hawaii. No, and then move to Hawaii. This is already off to a bad start. Abby. I don't know what Dolly Parton's net worth, but I'll buy her. And, Dolly and, I can't, and, Dolly okay. and, yeah, and Dolly Okay. Anything Dolly. Okay. I got you. Now, now let's imagine this. Let's imagine I offered this to someone. Let's imagine I offered to someone and say, hey, like, all you got to do, all you got to do is take it and use it. You have unlimited funds to do whatever you want with it and to help whomever you want. And let's say that person goes... Nah, I'm good. Instead, I'll just I'll just raise my own funds and do my own thing. What would you say to that person? <laughs> like, what would you think? You would think, what are you doing? Like, you're passing up on limited funds to be able to do whatever you want or take care of whatever you want. Like, but you're gonna say, no, I'm good. I'm gonna do my own thing and raise my own little amount of money to take care of stuff. In our mind, we would think that's ridiculous. Because why? Because you have unlimited funds in front of you and you can use it and it's being freely offered to you. Well, in a sense, that person that's like, well, I'll do my own thing, raise my own funds. In many ways, is us. We have this unlimited fund of prayer where, where we have this unlimited riches of God and he offers it to us so we can pray to him. Well, he has unlimited riches that will never get exhausted. 
where we can pray for whomever, pray for the people that we care about, pray for things that are happening around the world that might seem impossible, yet we go, no, I'll try to take my own little strategies or do my own little things in order to take care of this. But what we want to see is, is that prayer should be very much our first line of defense and everything. Prayer should be almost like a muscle memory response to things that we do with whatever we see going on around us. But here's the thing, is that all of us, we're fallen, sinful human beings. We live in a fallen, sinful world, and we're prone to only pray either just for those things we prefer or just pray for those things that just we want, or maybe we don't even want to pray at all. Maybe it's naturally we don't want to do that. But what we want to see tonight out of these passages, out of these seven verses, is this, is that if we're to lead the way in our faith, that we must pray for the salvation of everyone, live out our salvation before everyone, and preach the gospel of salvation to everyone. So if we want to lead the way in our faith, if we want to see that happen, if we want to combat false teachings that we've been seeing, we want to see change in the world, then we need to pray for the salvation of everyone, live out the salvation before everyone, and preach the gospel of salvation to everyone. And so we're going to look at that in 1 Timothy 2, verses 1 through 7. So if you have your own Bibles, uh, if you want to open up to that, if not, there's some Bibles in the room if you need to grab some. Um, But let's look at this together, okay? This is what it says. This is the word of the Lord. First of all, then, I urge that supplications, prayers, intercessions, and thanksgivings be made for all people, for kings and all who are in high positions, that we may lead a peaceful and quiet life, godly and dignified in every way. This is good, and it is pleasing in the sight of God our Savior, who desires all people to be saved and to come to the knowledge of the truth, for there is one God, and there is one mediator between God and man, men, the man, Christ Jesus." who gave himself as a ransom for all, which is the testimony given at the proper time. For this I was appointed a preacher and an apostle. I am telling the truth. I am not lying. A teacher of the Gentiles in faith and truth. Okay, let's pray. So Lord, um, we just want to come before you right now and we pray that you would help us understand more about prayer. Uh, You would help us understand the importance of prayer and how you command us in this to pray for everyone and how we are to do that and the different ways we are to pray. And so, Lord, we just need your help on that, that that we are sinful people in need of your grace, but you freely give your grace to everyone. And so right now, over these next several minutes, would you just free us up from any distractions going on around us? Would you just humble us and submit ourselves to your word? Would you just open up our hearts to receive this truth with humility and joy? Would you help us see more of our need for Jesus? And would you help us just continue to take this truth and go live it out and for us to lead the way in our faith? And then in turn, it'll help us grow more in our relationship with Christ, more in our relationship with one another here, and to go out and live out our mission to make Christ's name known. And so we'll pray all of this in Christ's name. Amen. All right, so there is, is going to be at least two truths we get out of this. That if we're to lead the way in our faith and pray for the salvation of everyone and live that out, the first main truth is this, is we are to pray for the salvation of all people. That we need to pray for the salvation of all people is the first thing we need to do. So... To give a very quick recap of chapter one is that Paul started his message. Is Paul started his letter? He's writing it to Timothy. He said, "All right, you, you've been placed in you've been placed in the church of Ephesus. That you are to combat all these false teachings that are going on, and that here's the ways you're going to do it." And then he takes a little sidestep, say, "Here is my testimony about the power of the gospel, the pure gospel, and how amazing the gospel is." And he says, "Okay, now you need to fight the good fight against false teachings and protect the gospel." And so now he is leaning into this next step 
about how we are to pray for all people. He's going to start going into like church order, how let's say the order of a service should be, how when people gather, what should go on. And he's going to explain how the gospel even affects that, how the gospel affects when we gather. And that when we lead astray or we don't believe in the true gospel, we have false teachings, then it can lead to people being shipwrecked like we saw last week with Hymenaeus and Alexander. And so we see how the gospel even affects just what we do as we gather here. And the first thing he says, he says, first of all, then I urge that supplications, prayers, intercessions, and thanksgivings be made. So first thing he says is corporate prayer needs to be a bedrock of what y'all do. Prayer needs to be so important to everything that y'all do. That needs to be number one thing that you do. That prayer is not just something we do to transition in between, let's say, songs. Prayer is not just something we do to close something out. No, prayer is something we are going before God and we are begging God to him to work and move as only he can. That prayer needs to be the very first thing that we do as Christians when we gather corporately, like we're doing tonight or like we do on Sunday morning. That prayer should be the most important thing that we do. So he wants us to understand this. In fact, Paul wants us so much to understand the importance of prayer that he uses four different types of prayers or uses four different words just to be so extra about it. He's like, look, you need to make supplications. You need to make prayers, intercessions and thanksgivings to be made for all people. All these words are essentially the same for the most part, just little changes in it. But he's trying to emphasize, look, prayer needs to be so important. I'm urging you. I'm, I'm begging you that prayer needs to be so important. But then Paul says, who are we to pray for? That you make all these prayers be made for all people. So the next truth we see is this. We need to pray for everyone. We need to pray for everyone. We're to make all kinds of prayers for all people. That we're to not show any sort of favoritism in our prayers. That, that there was a belief in this Ephesian church at the time. That almost like this elite status. Like this elitism. Like okay only, only the spiritual in crowd can truly be saved. And so they almost had like this favoritism, this like elite mindset of it. And so Paul's saying, no, 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 no. Not in the house of God. You are to pray for everybody. Because we're going to see that salvation is made available to everyone. So we need to pray for everybody is what we should do. So if we are to pray for everyone, make all these prayers for everyone, then here are some questions I just want you to self-reflect on in your hearts. How often do you pray for others? How often do you pray for your family members or friends or teammates or classmates or neighbors? Are you selective in who you pray for? Do you only pray for those that you really like or that you're really good friends with and you don't want to pray for those people that you just can't stand or that just grinds your gears or that just, you just when you look at them, ugh, you just can't deal with them? Do you base your prayers of what they've done for you? Or do you just pray unconditionally for those people? Here's the thing. We are to show no favoritism in who we pray for. Because we need to see that there is a gospel so great that we cannot reserve it just to certain people. We want to pray for everyone. In fact, I want to ask you all this. Does anyone know how unreached the world is? Does anyone want to guess like what percentage or how many people? Anyone want to take a guess of how, how many people or what percentage of the world you think is considered unreached with the gospel? That they have little to no access to the gospel. Okay, 70. A little over 50? Too much. Uh, Two billion. Okay. So according, according to the Joshua Project, um, that there is 3.28 billion people who are considered unreached. In fact, seven, there are 7,407 unreached people groups. That's a lot of people. That's around 42% or so. How about this? Let's, let's get a little more closer. 
Does anyone know how unreached the state of Tennessee is? Okay. Like I can name 10 people off my head. Like okay. Right okay. Anybody else want to guess? 37. 37. Okay. I'll say like 55, 60. Okay. I would say you're all the closest. So Tennessee has a population of 7 million people. There's 4 million people that are considered unreached in the state of Tennessee. But we're the Bible Belt. We're the South. There's a church around every corner. You know, surely, surely that would mean people say, but no, this, this shows that there's still a lot of work to be done and there's still a lot of prayer to be made. There's still a lot of people that we need to reach for the gospel. And so we are to pray for everyone. But then Paul transitions to this next one. He then says, who are also to pray for? So look at what it says in verse two. We're to pray for kings and all who are in high positions. So the next thing we see is we need to pray for those in authority. We need to pray for those that are in authority. Now, now, just to give a little cultural, historical background to this, when Paul is writing, hey, pray for kings, is that at this time, the king of Rome was King Nero. And Nero was no fan of Christianity whatsoever. In fact, Nero persecuted Christians. He hated Christians. Yet here's Paul saying, yeah, pray for the kings and those that are in authority. And the king would even set up governors around the different provinces in the area, and they would just rule according to whatever the king says and just whatever they felt best. And so during this time, you have King Nero who can't stand Christians. And you have all these governors that are set up by Nero across all these areas. Even more so than that, during this time, all unofficial religious activities were closely monitored by Rome at the same time. So what a witness this might have been if this church is gathering and you have the government spying in on them or closely monitoring them. And what do they hear? They hear people praying for them. Yes, praying for wisdom and praying for that, but also praying for their repentance, praying for salvation for them. That they're praying for those that are in authority. They're praying for this. So if we're to pray for those in authority, then that asks a few more questions for us to think about ourselves. How often do you pray for our government? Or how often do you pray for our president? Or our our vice president? Or Congress? And here's the thing. Not just the president or vice president or senators or governors or mayors that we like or that hold the same political ideology that we hold to. How often do we pray for everyone that's in government? Because here's the thing. In Romans 13, 1 and 2, God says that he established the government, that he has established the government and that we are to submit ourselves to the government. And whenever we resist that, then it's we are resisting the authority of God because God is the one that put that authority in place. He didn't say just submit to a Republican government or a Democrat government or whatever, whatever, however as you fall across the spectrum. That we're to submit to government. We are to pray for those governing officials. That we need to pray for wisdom for them. We need to pray that they govern according to how God desires them to govern. Because here's the thing. Here's my question for us. Do we pray for the government as much as we complain about the government? Do we pray for the government as much as we like to get caught up watching news and everything else? I'm right there with It's so easy for us to complain about whatever's going on. It's so easy for us to do that. But are we truly praying for them at the same time? Because you think Paul goes on to explain the result of when a government does govern the way they're supposed to. He says next, so that they may, we may lead a peaceful and quiet life, godly and dignified in every way. 
So being quiet and peaceful living, a quiet and peaceful life, it just means we're undisturbed. We're free from all the noises and all the uproars that can go on. And let me tell you, we live in a society with a lot of noises and a lot of uproars that happen. That, you know, something can happen on social media and everyone has an opinion on it. Everybody has something to say about everything. Everybody's connected to everything. And it's very very easy for us to get caught up in the midst of that. But when the government properly functions the way God has set it up, where they allow good to flourish and they give justice when justice is due, then it helps people to live godly and dignified lives. So what godly means, it just means the devout practices for and appropriate beliefs about God. Or dignified, it means the quality of being worthy of respect based on the account of one's behavior. So here's what he, if we're having a quiet, peaceful life, we're undisturbed by the noise or what's going on around us, we're having these devout beliefs that account for God and being respected in that sense, then here's the truth of that. We need to live out our salvation. We need to live out our salvation. We can't just pray for the salvation of people if we're not living it out ourselves. Imagine this, like what kind of witness is it if these Christians are gathering and they say, we need to pray for the government and we're going to pray for the government, but then turn right around and they just mock them or badmouth them or bad talk them in any sort of way. Or another way, let's say, what kind of witness is if we say, yeah, we need to pray for the salvation of all people. We want to be a welcoming church. But then if someone comes in that doesn't look like us, dress like us, act like us, talk like us, we go, ooh. And we kind of avoid those people or treat them differently. A great story uh, that I can think about in my own personal life that just got brought to mind when I thought about being welcoming is uh, at my last church when I was in Virginia. We went up to Philadelphia, and the pastor there was telling us this story about how their church was on the corner of, of, this, church, or of this place in Philly and how he said there would literally be a prostitute that would advertise herself on the steps of the church. And a lot of pastors there go, well, don't you want to, like, shoo her away? Like, there, it's in front of the church. Like, come on, man. He goes, well, hold on. She's, she's at the doorstep of the church. I just want her to feel comfortable coming in and for her to find salvation and for her to be able to find Jesus in the midst of that. And in fact, he even said one day, he's like, I just got up early. I don't know why. And then I was like, you know what? I'm going to go, I'm, I'm just going to clean the toilets in the church. Don't know why I feel compelled to do that, but I'm going to clean it. And sure enough, that morning, that same lady that was at that corner even knocked on the door and asked, hey, can I just use your restroom? And he was elated the fact that she felt comfortable walking in and going in there. and was like, can I get you a water bottle? Can I help serve you in that sense? And he was backing up what he was saying. He's like, I want people to feel welcome in here. The people of all different walks of life that all have sins and all have struggles and all have things they're wrestling with. And I want them to come in. And the fact that she came through the door and felt welcome in that. The church should be exactly like that. We're welcoming to everyone of all tribes, tongues, and nations, of all different backgrounds, of all different whatever the case is, because we all have the same salvation in Christ. That we're all made in the image of Christ. And here's the thing. When we pray this way and we live out this way, it says it is pleasing to God. We see that it says in verse, uh, in verse 3, this is good and it is pleasing in the sight of God our Savior. That is pleasing in the sight of God. When we live our lives that represent a life that is transformed by the gospel, it is pleasing to God. When we, when we show people that like, not only do we believe, like we believe this because we live it out. We're not going to just say, hey, I believe in God, I believe in this. But we're going to live it out in our everyday lives. Because here's the thing. We see what God desires in verse 4. We live all this out and we do all this. Why? Because it's God, our Savior, who desires all people to be saved and come to the knowledge of the truth. Now, this is not saying what is called universalism. So quick sidetrack, what universalism means, it just means, oh, everyone's going to get saved. No ifs, ands, or buts about it. 
that everyone gets saved, that when Jesus died, it covered everyone's sins, and everyone should get saved. That's not what God is saying here, that God desires that, but that's not, let's say, his salvific will, if, if he makes sense. But for salvation, yes, the gospel is available to everybody, and anyone can be saved, but someone still must repent and believe in Christ and receive the gospel in order to be saved. That yes, God absolutely desires everyone to be saved, but that person still must accept that free gift of life. And so we see the heart of God in this, though. We see that God desires everyone to be saved. And so if God desires everyone to be saved, then we need to obey this next truth. We need to make God's desire our desire. We need to make God's desire our desire. Is that if God desires everyone to be saved, then we should have the same desire to see everybody saved. We should have this desire to see everybody saved at our schools. Everybody in our neighborhood saved. Everybody wherever we're at saved. The entire world saved. The four million that's in Tennessee, they're unsaved. We want to see them saved. The close to 42% of the world that's unreached, we want to see them reached and saved. Here's the thing. When we pray to God, is that our will becomes more aligned with God's will. And we pray, we pray to God, our hearts become more aligned with his heart and his desires become our desires. You'll be amazed the more that you pray for certain people, how God will work on your hearts and soften them to them. How when you pray for certain people, maybe you cannot stand. And when you say, Lord, would you help me see the way that you see them? Would you help me care for these people? It will radically change our hearts. So we want to be able to pray for all this. So let me ask you this. The thing in your hearts, do you desire for everyone to be saved? Do you even desire for them to be saved? Or do you think some people just seem too far gone when you look at your school or workplace or sports teams? Or have we given up on some people? We think there's no way God could ever save them. Like the way they live their life and the way they talk and act and everything else, there's no way. But here's the thing. God desires for everyone to be saved. Anyone can be saved that repents and believes in Christ. Because you've got to remember who's writing this. Paul is writing this. And how God used Paul and how Paul wanted nothing to do with Christians. And I was writing about how we are to live out our Christian life. We must continually pray for the salvation of all people as we've seen. Because again, if God can save Paul, God can save anybody. But we understand this backdrop, that we are to pray for all people, pray for the government, pray for everyone around us. And we must not only pray for salvation of all people, but here comes our second main truth, is that we must preach for the salvation of all people. We need to preach for the salvation of all people. So kind of the last verses 5 and 6, Paul starts getting a lot of doctrinal beliefs that would... That would address, let's say, some of the false teachings. Starts addressing doctrinal stuff that all of us would believe in as Christians. And so in verse, the very beginning of verse 5. For there is one God. So right off the bat, Paul says that there is only one God. So that is the next truth. There is only one God. There is only one God in the universe. And it's our Lord and Savior. That there is only one God in the midst of this. We see it in a couple different places in scripture. Isaiah 44, 6 says this. I am the first and the last, and there is no God except me. Deuteronomy 6, 4 and 5, it says, The Lord our God, the Lord is one. And again, there might be some that agree to this. They say, yeah, I think, I think there's only one God, or I only believe in one God. But they believe that God is kind of a plethora of different gods. There's just so many different gods out there. Whatever God you believe in is your God, and whatever God I believe in is my God. And there's many paths that just lead to the same mountaintop. But we say, no, 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 no. There is only one God. There's only one God. There's not multiple gods. There's not just that's your God and that's my God. There's only one God who's creator over everything. And that he goes on to say that there is not only just one God, but there's only one way to this God. 
So Paul gets even more exclusive. So he says in verse 5, there's only one God, and then there is one mediator between God and man, the man, Christ Jesus. So there is only one way to God. So one thing we're going to preach is that there's only one God. Next we preach, there's only one way to that God. And that is Jesus Christ. It says that he is our mediator. So what mediator means, it just means a negotiator who acts as a link between parties. So Jesus is our mediator between us and God, that he negotiates for us because he took and took on our flesh. He died the death that we deserved for us to be able to be reconciled back to him. In fact, he describes himself as the man because this means Jesus took on our flesh. Jesus walked in our same footsteps, if you will, yet never surrendering his divinity. He would describe himself a lot as that as the son of man. Is a lot of times he would describe himself. He obeyed all the laws, all 613 laws that we couldn't obey and that Israel couldn't obey. And that he took on the sacrifice. And now he is our mediator that reconciles us back to God. So while salvation is available to everybody and is absolutely available to everybody, there's only one way to obtain salvation, and that is through Jesus Christ. Again, salvation is available to everybody, but it's only through Jesus Christ. And then we see the reason why Jesus is our mediator in verse 6. It says, who gave himself, who gave himself as a ransom. So Jesus gave himself as a ransom. So here's what ransom means for us to understand this definition. It's what is given in exchange as payment for the release of someone held captive. So it's saying whoever's held captive, whoever's in prison, someone would say, okay, I'll pay whatever the price is in order to free that person out of that prison. I'll free them from their captivity. So here's the thing. The world is held in captivity. It's captive to sin. That we we are held captive to sin. And that's why we see in Mark 10, 45, the son of man, Jesus, came to came to, to serve, not be served, and to give his life as a ransom. Jesus gave his life as a ransom, and we see next, as a ransom for all. We pray for everyone because Jesus died for everyone. Jesus gave himself as a ransom for all people. And so we proclaim the gospel to everyone because salvation is available to everyone. And so we see this, that if Jesus gave himself and his death is available, or his death covers everybody's sins for all of time, and we preach that. And we see this next truth is Jesus' death is sufficient for all. Jesus' death is sufficient for all. Meaning, look, Jesus paid the penalty for all of our sins for all of time. So whatever our debt was that we had, Jesus paid it in full. Whatever the penalty was, whatever our ransom was, Jesus said, I got it. I'll, I'll cover the tab. In fact, we see this in Colossians 2, 13 through 14. Where it says we're dead in our sins and that we had this gigantic, just debt, just insurmountable debt against us. And it said Jesus made us alive with him and paid our record of debt in full. And he removed all of the legal demands from that by nailing it to the cross. So imagine this insurmountable debt that we have. And Jesus says, I paid it every bit, every last penny. I paid it in full. And so it said Jesus gave himself as a ransom for all. And it says he is the testimony at the proper time. So him being the testimony at the proper time, that means because of his first coming. When he first came, it was to bring salvation to everyone and to help offer salvation to everybody. But it also means he's going to have a testimony second time where he comes a second time. And the second time he comes, it's going to be to judge the world, not to die for the sins of the world. And so that's another reason why we go out and we tell people about the gospel. 
is because he gave us testimony the first time. And so we go share that testimony to other people. So that way they are saved. And they're not, they're not going to deal with, let's say, eternal judgment or eternity in hell. And that's why we go tell the testimony of Christ. And so we see this, and we see this last verse. So we see all this. We're to pray for everybody. We're to pray for authorities. We're to proclaim this gospel to people. We're to live out our salvation. And it comes back to Paul. And Paul says this in verse 7. For this I was appointed a preacher and an apostle. And I'm telling the truth. I'm not lying. A teacher of the Gentiles in faith and truth. And so Paul finally explains that because salvation is available to all, God saved Paul and is now using Paul to go proclaim Christ to the Gentiles. And so he was appointed a preacher, or some translations say he was appointed a herald. Does anybody know what a herald is? Mm-hmm. So, so you might have seen this in shows. Anybody ever seen like a town crier? Where they would stand in front of a crowd and say, Hear ye, hear ye. And I have a decree from the king. Anybody know what I'm talking about? They'd unroll the scroll and say that. So when it talks about a herald, what a herald would do is the king would say, Here is this message. I need you to take it and go deliver it to the people. And they would stand and say, Hear ye, hear ye. They would unroll it and say, This is the message of the king. And so Paul is saying that the king of the universe has made Paul a representative, a herald of this gospel. And in fact, he does the same thing for us, that he still, he still uses human representatives. Because he has appointed us. We are appointed by God. We are appointed by God. And so he's appointing us, and we are to go into our communities, we're going to go into our schools, into these different places. Now, I wouldn't recommend you stand on, let's say, the lunch table and say, Hear ye, hear ye. I wouldn't recommend that. But we're to go and we're to proclaim the gospel to other people. We're to proclaim, look, the gospel is made available to everyone. Salvation is available to all. If you'll just repent and believe. But there's only one way to this and it is through God. And we pray for that. That we pray for that. Why? Because we see that God can save anybody. Again, if God can save Paul, and now Paul is writing this to Timothy, then God can save anybody and use anybody. So whoever that person is in your life, you think there's no way God can save them. Don't be surprised. God is the God of the impossible. We pray to him for that. We pray for the salvation of all people. Because we know the gospel can save anybody. It can overcome any obstacle. It can overcome any sin. It forgives any sin. And we're to proclaim this gospel to other people. So if we are to pray for the salvation of all people, and we are to live this out, then, then I, I, want to, I want you to end with you asking this question to yourself. How is your prayer life? How, how is your prayer life? When it comes to praying for the salvation of people, when it comes to praying for the salvation of your family or friends or classmates or teammates or coworkers or neighbors. Let me have two to kind of help, to help us understand this more. Are, are you, how are you praying for your neighbors? And by neighbors, I don't just mean like those who are physically next to you on the street you live on. I mean like people that you rub shoulders with on a constant basis. People that you walk beside every single day in whatever walks of life you're involved in. How are you praying for your neighbors? And then to follow that, how are you proclaiming the gospel to your neighbors? That, that if we are to reach the world and impact the world with the gospel, then it starts on our knees praying for everyone. 
And then as we've seen throughout this, that God can save anybody and God can use anybody to proclaim the gospel and make the gospel known and then save those people and then use those people for the gospel. So if we are to lead the way in this, we are to lead the way in praying for the salvation of all people, in living out our salvation before all people, and then proclaiming this gospel to other people so they can also receive salvation. Let's pray. So we thank you so much that that we can actually come before you and pray to you. Jesus, we thank you that you are a mediator, that you ransomed us from spiritual death to spiritual life, that you freed us as captives to sin. And so, Lord, would you constantly remind us of that, of how you have saved us? And we keep that on the forefront. So we continue to pray for those around us. We pray for those just in our Rutherford County area. We pray for those in our community. We pray for those that don't know you, Lord, and that they would come to know you. And we pray that you would convict them of their sins, but you also do that through sending us out into our communities and to proclaim the gospel to everyone. And so would you give us the boldness and confidence to know that you are with us, you're with us every step of the way, that no one is ever too far gone from your grace or mercy, that anyone can be saved. So we pray for our neighbors, we pray for our state, we pray for our country, we pray for the world around us, that you would save those people and you would send us out to proclaim the gospel of those people. As it says in your word, we want to pray for our government. We want to pray for our president, vice president, and Congress. We pray that, they, um, that we would see that you are the king above all kings, that you give the wisdom to govern with wisdom from above, that they would hold to what is good according to your word. And that they would invoke justice as your word describes it. And that we would live good, peaceful, quiet lives. And that we would be godly and dignified and respectable in every area as we live out our faith, confident in you. Thank you, Lord Jesus, for all this. And it's your name we pray. Amen.